Hey, veterans. Welcome to the VA Claims Insider Podcast. We are veterans helping veterans get the VA disability rating and compensation you deserve. I'm your host, Air Force Service Disabled Veteran Brian Reese, and each week we share VA disability claim tips, tricks, strategies, and lessons learned to help you win, service connect, and get rated at the appropriate level, even if you've already filed or been denied. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. What's up, insiders? How's it going, guys? Can everybody see, hear me all right? Sorry, just trying to figure out the tech stuff here. Make sure I can see your questions. All right, if you're there, do me a favor, guys. Shoot me a thumbs up or something. Let me know if you can hear me all right. I don't, okay, we can hear you. All right. So, uh, I wanted to take a little time this afternoon to talk about a really important topic, and that's PTSD and chronic pain CMP exams. Um, I want to part dispel some myths around CMP exams and around mental health, and then I also want to, on the other part, talk about tactics and strategies to communicate effectively in the CMP exam. Um, now, those are the, the uh, topics I want to talk about, but I also want to be sure to answer as many questions as possible. So any questions that you have, please um, go ahead and ask those, and I'll get to them as quickly as I can, um, and, and potentially, you know, kind of as we go, I'll answer questions. But um, the first thing I want to do is dispel some myths around CMP exams. Uh, because if there's a topic that's diluted with misinformation online, it's definitely CMP exams. And uh, the reason for that is, is actually it's pretty obvious when you take the time to look at it. By and large, when you are reading someone's comments about uh, CMP exams or their opinions on CMP exams, the only perspective they have is their own experience. And so what they're talking about is their experience. So whether it was a good experience, a bad experience, whether they did something that was unethical, like, you know, I've seen online the post that suggests for a PTSD CMP exam that you go in dirty with your, you know, hair unwashed, clothes unwashed, you know, that sort of thing. And maybe that did work for one person. But what you don't realize is the hundreds of people that do something like that and then end up being labeled as a malingerer in their CMP exam that ends up haunting them um, for the rest of their life. So, um, I want to take some time to kind of dispel some of those myths around CMP exams because the reality is the VA is the largest healthcare provider in the entire United States. One person's perspective is not by any means a fair or accurate um, basis for coming up with your strategy for how you should um, handle your CMP exam. Um, there's there's a world of variance that comes into play based off of you know is it private contractors that are handling your cmp exam is it at the va is the person doing your cmp exam are they a part-time person who has their own private practice and they do this part-time are they veteran friendly are they not veteran friendly have they been doing this for 30 years and they're jaded 
there's any number of factors that go into play. Um, and, and we hear all of these stories because we do hundreds of these a month. We, we help our clients. We do coaching calls with our clients uh, for CMP exams. And we, we see it all. And we see it all from across the country. And not only that, but CMP exams that take place in other countries as well. Um, because, yes, they do do CMP uh, exams in other countries as well. So um, it's really important that you don't come up with your strategy based off of some little bit of information that you read online by someone who is just sharing their own individual experience. Um, so to talk about, you know, some strategy that I've learned after coaching hundreds of vets through the CMP exam process. And also just for, you know, the track record, um, I'm rated for both somatic symptom disorder as well as PTSD. And um, I went from zero to 70% on that, my very first CMP exam. So I have both my own individual experience uh, of it and the success that I've had, as well as um, the success of coaching hundreds of clients to a 70% rating, 100% rating, and 50% rating. Anything below a 50% rating, to be honest with you, I think is really completely unacceptable. Um, by and large, I think everyone should be rated at at least the 70% rating, but I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, there's two key things that I've found that are, are what's really um, going to lead to the most amount of success with uh, a CMP exam. One thing is to remember that the person doing that CMP exam is a human being just like you. If there's someone that gets beat up a lot at the VA, it's CMP examiners. And, and if you think about it, um, you, you can understand why that happens. You have vets that are coming in pissed off that they're having pissed off with the VA first of all for all the the headache and heartache they're having to go through in the whole claims process because it's extremely frustrating and anxiety inducing and then they finally get someone to talk to and they feel like they're being put on the spot and they're being treated like liars and what do they do they take it out on the CMP examiner now if you get beat up every single day by pissed off vets um, what do you think is going to tend to happen right over time, you're going to get jaded. Um, the other thing is, is if we're completely honest, we know that these CMP examiners see a lot of BS claims, you know. Um, I'm not saying that the percentages are high, but um, it happens, right? So what ends up happening over time is CMP examiners can get really jaded. And um, they get into the routine of just treating their clients like another number. And actually, that's an important point to make. Actually, in a CMP exam, the client is not the veteran. Actually, the client is the VA. And that's an important piece of information to know. Um, they're doing due diligence for the VA. They're not, their first interest is not actually you, the veteran. So um, one thing that I've found is, is really important to ensuring success is to establish human connection with the evaluator. You want to get past that wall. We know that wall exists. When we go into the CMP exam, we know they're in the role of CMP examiner. And we know we're in the role of CMP examinee. And both of us kind of go into there playing our parts, right? But what I would encourage you to do is actually to reach out to that person and acknowledge, first of all, that they're a person and ask for them to recognize that you're a person as well, too. And so um, one of the ways that you can try that is to just to go in there and let them know right off the bat how you're feeling. Let them know, like, look, I haven't slept for days in preparation for this CMP exam. My anxiety is at an all-time high. I'm extremely stressed out. I'm extremely frustrated. 
This process is exhausting. I don't know what to talk about. I'm afraid I'm going to forget important things. Um, and my life depends on the decisions that you make in this CMP exam. And, and I'm worried that either I might blow it or if you don't care, you might blow it for me. And so I'm asking for your help. I'm asking you to understand that this is really important to me in my life and, and to help me through this process so that I get a fair evaluation. Um, so something like that, keep in mind that it's, it's human nature to want to help when we're asked. Also, when someone validates us and acknowledges us, and you can do that by just saying, hey, I, I understand you have your job to do. I understand that it's an important job and um, I just want to make sure I get treated fairly. You're, you're validating them. You're acknowledging them. You're also asking for help. And that goes a tremendous um, way in helping bridge that divide between the two of you and getting them to um, recognize that, hey, this is actually a real person, not just another number walking through my room today. And I need to do the best that I can to help them out. Right. Um, so that's the first most important tip that, that I would offer is do something to humanize the experience and get them to see you, the real person sitting in front of them, not just a claim that needs to be um, quickly breezed through. Uh, the other thing is know your claim, know your symptoms and know how to articulate them well. And, and the best way that you can do that is to read over the DVQ for um, and, and it's the same for PTSD as it is for chronic pain. Um, all mental health evaluations are rated based off the same symptoms. And I, I've got the list here um, up and I'll go over a few of these symptoms. And, and when I explain why I think everyone should be rated probably at least at 70% uh, for mental health, I'll, I'll be going directly from the DVQ. And anyway, you can always download the DVQ online so you can read over it yourself. Um, if you get a mental evaluation done with us, you'll get a copy of a DVQ filled out. You'll be able to see what symptoms the psychologist checked you off for, and that'll help as well. Um, but know the symptoms. And then the other important thing about knowing the symptoms is knowing how to articulate those um, in a way that makes sense, right? And you, you don't want to go in there sounding like a textbook. For example, you don't want to tell someone, I have hypervigilance right? No one speaks that way for real. And so if you go in there sounding like a textbook, it only raises suspicions. It sounds like you're telling them what they want to hear, right? Or what they need to hear. So what's better to do is to, um, in, in, uh, I was in writing before, and one of the rules we would always say in writing is show, don't tell, right? It's the same rule applies here. You want to show, don't tell. So you don't say I have depression. Don't tell me you have depression. Show me how you have depression. So does depression for you, does that look like I can't get out of bed in the morning? Does that look like um, I don't like to leave the house and I despair for the future? You know, what exactly does depression look for, like for you? Same thing with anxiety. What does anxiety look like for you? Do you have a panic attack when you go into the grocery store? Um, do you find it difficult to go and perform normal functions of daily living because it's, it's um, anxiety inducing for you to leave your house? You know, those are examples of, of making it real for the CMP examiner, and you're not just speaking the verbiage from the DBQ. Now, um, why do I say that everyone should be rated at, I think, at least 70% by and large for um, mental health, for, for PTSD, and for chronic pain? I'm going to pull some of the symptoms directly from the DBQ that um, 
are straight from the 70% criteria, right? Uh, one of them is difficulty in adapting to stressful circumstances, including work or work-like settings. Another is inability to establish and maintain effective relationships. And another one is impaired impulse control, such as unprovoked irritability. Um, and another one, and this one sounds really weird, but I'm gonna explain what this is because I think most people don't understand this. It's spatial disorientation. And I can tell you, I have that through the roof and it drives my wife crazy. That's why she drives everywhere when we go um, out. Uh, spatial disorientation, all that really means is, is uh, you constantly are getting lost and then you don't have a sense of like, you know, direction or whatever. And uh, my wife and I lived in the same small town for nine years in Longmont, Colorado, right outside of Boulder. And, uh, you know, still just the most simple things, you know, we would be leaving the Target parking lot or we would be going to a restaurant to meet some friends for dinner, same restaurant we've been to for years. And I'd be driving and I would still make the wrong turn or I would just be going the wrong way. And my wife would be like, where are you going? What are you doing? Or we'd be leaving and I'd be going back home and I'd turn the wrong direction. Um, another example would be um, if we were ever at the mall, I would walk into a store, you know, we're walking one direction. I walk into a store, we leave the store and I walk back the same direction we just came from. Um, I really struggle with spatial disorientation. That's all that is. It sounds like a lot, but that's really all it is. Um, hey, Michael, I just saw your question. This is Eric Cooley. I'm one of the VCE team leads here at VA Claims Insider. Um, so just, yeah, to introduce you to myself. Um, now, let me go back and go over some of these other symptoms, because again, I was saying, you know, the rule is show, don't tell, right? So let me go back to one of the other ones. Again, this is from the 70% category. Difficulty adapting to stressful circumstances, including work or a work-like setting. And this is one that I know vets really struggle with, but who would ever even think to talk about this in a CMP exam? How many vets really struggle with dealing with supervisors at work? Because the things that the supervisor takes seriously don't really seem serious to you because you've been in a career where you were actually dealing with real serious things. You were dealing with people's lives being on the line or um, people's well-being. Uh, you were dealing with your own potential life being on the line. Any number of very serious things that uh, the, the entire um, military is full of jobs where if you mess up, it could greatly impact other people's lives to include loss of life or um, them being seriously injured. Okay. So uh, you then go from having a job with all this gravity towards it, all this seriousness, and then you go into the civilian world and they take things seriously that you just don't really care about, that they just don't strike you as all that important. Right? How many people uh, struggle to deal with supervisors that are getting frustrated with them over something that you know, maybe doesn't even feel all that important or maybe, maybe they struggle with circumstances where their job doesn't necessarily even feel all that important and they can't really connect to it anymore. Um, there, there's any number of reasons why a vet might struggle to really adapt and work in the civilian um, world after coming from the military world. Um, any one of those would fall into that category of difficulty in adapting to stressful circumstances. Um, giving personal examples of that, again, is going to be the key to communicating that effectively in a CMP exam. Um, inability to establish and maintain effective relationships. Again, this is directly from the 70% category. How many vets do you know that have begun to isolate? I.e., I, they don't hang out with their friends anymore. They don't go out socializing anymore. 
They don't go to family events anymore. And why is that? You know, they, they don't really feel like they connect to people the way they used to. They become much more internally focused um, and find it difficult to connect with people that they used to even feel close to. Um, you see this all the time with veterans when they come back home, um, even while they're still active duty, they go back home and they visit their old friends who are still civilians and they find that they can't really connect to them anymore. Um, this is a really common thing that happens to veterans. And, you know, again, I'm talking about 70% mental health um, straight from the DVQ. The things I'm talking about, you can see they don't, you, we get this idea that 70% must mean that you're maybe really bad off or you're really crazy or whatever, but that's just a myth. Uh, mental health is something that we have a lot of shame around in our country. Um, and we have a lot of ignorance still around in our uh, country. And we've got a lot of education to do. And that's part of our mission here at VA Claims Insiders, normalizing mental health and really pointing out that in reality, these symptoms are much more human than we make them out to be. Um, so let me, let me talk about another one here. Um, impaired impulse control, such as unprovoked irritability. Who can't relate to that feeling of like you're straining against the reins, that your anxiety is up, your anger is up, your frustration is up, and given the right trigger, the right circumstance, you might just lose your cool. And in fact, maybe sometimes you do. Maybe you lose your cool with your wife or your husband. Maybe you lose your cool with your kids. Maybe you lose your cool in traffic, driving to work. Any number of ways that um, we as veterans will often lose our temper. And of course, one thing that's common in the military culture is that we have really high values and really high standards that we hold ourselves to. And so, of course, we aspire not to be angry people or to lash out. We aspire to be restrained. And yet this can get the best of all of us. And I'll share a really embarrassing story that happened with me recently. And yeah, it brings me a lot of embarrassment. I don't like to share it, but I want to make this real for you because if you have a CMP exam coming up, talking about PTSD or chronic pain, I want you to be able to make this real for yourself so that you can make it real for the CMP examiner. So um, back Memorial Day weekend, my wife's brother was in town visiting with his girlfriend and we were going out and um, just doing sightseeing and tourist stuff. I live in the Green Mountains of Vermont, so it's a tourist destination. And uh, for, more, for Memorial Day weekend, it was completely slammed. People were everywhere. It was a beautiful weekend, first beautiful weekend in spring in a gorgeous place. So, you know, it, it was craziness everywhere. Uh, we went to this place that's right down the road from where I live, uh, Lake Champlain Chocolate. Went to go get some chocolates and some coffees, and then we were going to go out to the mountains. And when we were pulling into the parking lot, the parking lot was completely slammed, completely slammed. No parking spaces were available. It was full of people walking around because there's more than just like Champlain chocolate there. There's uh, Cabot Cheese, which is another famous place, plus a, a whiskey distillery. It's just a cool little place to go and hang out. Well, there were people walking everywhere. I had to navigate the parking lot carefully, and I found a parking space that was available. But in the parking space next to it was a lady in a vehicle that had her, she had her car door open. So the parking, the one parking space that was available was blocked by this lady who was just standing there next to her car with her car door open. And so I, I waited there for a minute, just waiting for her to close her door. You know, you, you figure she was either getting in or getting out, but she wasn't. She just stood there. She just stood there, kept the door open. 
I backed up a little bit. I turned on my blinker. I'm in a big black SUV. There's really no missing me. And she just looked right through us as if we weren't even there. So already my anxiety is really high because of all the people that are in the parking lot and how packed it is and thinking about how packed it was going to be in Lake Champlain and the line and all of that. Um, and then that's happening. And I'm telling myself stories in my head like, she's so rude. She's so thoughtless. I'm looking at her vehicle and looking at how nice her vehicle is. And I'm thinking, oh, she's just rich and thinks she's better than everyone else. And again, you know, all of this stuff, of course, probably only half of this is true if, if that. But, you know, the mind does what the mind does, right? And someone who didn't, who wasn't suffering from impaired impulse control and unprovoked irritability might have just rolled down the window and be like, hey, excuse me, can you please close the door so I can park? But it just hit me the wrong way at just the right time, and I blew up. I lost my cool. I way overreacted to the situation. I was rude. I, I handled it in a very poor way. And, of course, embarrassed my wife. She didn't want to go into the store after that. Um, and, and then I felt bad too. I felt bad too because I acted that way in front of my um, little boy. Now, he's only 15 months old, but at the same time, I care very much about the example that I'm setting for him. And that is not consistent with how I believe in showing up in life, you know? But that was it. That was a real situation. It happened. Um, it was a very real thing. I think it's something that's relatable. And we all have those stories, we all have those experiences. And guess what? That's directly from, directly from the DDQ. That's a 70% symptom, right? Now, you wouldn't go in to a CMP exam and say, hey, I have impaired impulse control. Who talks that way, right? And you wouldn't say, I have unprovoked irritability. But if you can share a story like that, you're illustrating for the CMP examiner how you um, experience impaired, impaired impulse control and how you experience unprovoked irritability. So what I encourage all of my clients when I do my one-on-one -on -one coaching calls with them before their CMP exam is I send them this document. It's just the symptoms pulled directly from section four of the DBQ, or I'm sorry, section seven of the DBQ. And we go over those symptoms and we talk about, hey, you know, look at, you know, this symptom. Do you have this? If so, how do you experience this in, in your life? And I encourage every one of my clients to, to read over this and to take some time reflecting on, all right, if you have that symptom, what are some times you've experienced that recently? Or what are some times, or what are some ways you experience that frequently? And be ready to talk about that in your CMP exam. And one thing that you can do that can help, because when we go into a CMP exam, sometimes we just go blank, right? And we forget what to talk about. So one thing that can help is just writing it out ahead of time, writing out some notes for each one of those symptoms. And then taking those notes in with you. And, and you know, the CMP examiner is going to have questions that they want to ask, right? They're going to be driving the train, but you can let them know, like, hey, um, I'm worried I might forget some things to talk about. So I brought in some notes so I was sure to cover these things. Is it okay if I talk to you about these things? Or at the very least, can I leave you these notes so that you can go after, um, go over them afterward, right? So, um, Anyway, th those are a few strategies that I have found to be highly effective in winning CMP exams. Um, and, you know, at this point, I, I have worked with hundreds of vets. I've won over, um, well over 90% of the claims that I've worked with my vets. And if I were to ever see a 50% rating for um, PTSD or, or chronic pain, 
that's something I would absolutely want to uh, uh, fight so long as the vet didn't feel like that was absolutely accurate. Um, so I want to kind of transition into some now I've been talking very generally about mental health uh, by and large, but now um, I, I want to address well, why did I choose to talk about PTSD and chronic pain in the same um, same live session. And, and that's because this is an important thing to understand. And, and a lot of vets, it turns out, have somatic symptom disorder. And there's a lot of um, misunderstanding about it. And this is one that I, I've, I've seen over and over again, that vets struggle to talk about effectively. Um, chronic pain claims, in particular, are, are difficult to talk about because um, we, we tend to focus on, well, the pain, right? The, the physical pain of the symptoms. But in reality, it's actually evaluated the exact same way PTSD is evaluated. And an important thing to keep in mind, um, these two claims are, are parallel to each other. The real difference is the cause or, or the stressor. So it, with PTSD, the stressor is going to be a traumatic event that you went through. That could be combat. That could be non-combat. That could be personal assault. Um, with chronic pain, it's not the stressful event that you went through, it is the stress induced by the pain that you experience. And that pain is both physical as well as psychological. And, and what that means by, by the psychological pain, it is the consequences of the disabilities in your life, or what we sometimes call it a lifestyle impact claim. And the reason why I would call it that is because um, physical disabilities will have a negative impact on your quality of life. And so um, one that, that I see quite often and, and the one that I think goes under the radar quite a bit is actually tinnitus. Um, if you've ever really, I don't suffer from tinnitus, but I've worked with lots of vets who do. And so I've learned a lot about tinnitus. And if you ever really dig into it and find out about what the symptoms are like with tinnitus, it seems so trivial. It's only a 10% rating. That's the max it can get. But in reality, the impact on your quality of life is quite significant. Imagine having a ringing that you could never turn off and followed you everywhere you went. I mean, that type of thing has been used as a form of psychological torture um, for prisoners of war, right? It can make it difficult to fall asleep because you can't turn the ringing off. And even with white noise, you still hear the ringing. It can make it difficult to stay asleep. So you're constantly living with sleep debt. And with that sleep debt also comes the fact that your body produces more of the chemicals that cause feelings like depression. Um, also, imagine the anxiety of knowing you can never enjoy going out to a meal with your family again and enjoy special occasions because if you go out to eat, you can't hear anyone that's in the at the table because between the ringing of the ear and all the background noise, you can't make out what people at your own table are saying. So that means your kid's graduation and you want to go out to eat afterward. The anxiety that you feel about going out because you're going to be in a fishbowl. Everyone will be having a good time and you can't engage because you can't engage in conversation. You can't hear them. So those are the kinds of things that are actually being looked at and what's called a chronic pain claim or sometimes called a lifestyle impact claim. The clinical term for it is somatic symptom disorder. So with somatic symptom disorder, whether it's tinnitus, whether it's a, a back or a knee or something that is negatively impacting your quality of life, your focus is, is very similar to that with PTSD. With PTSD, again, it's the stressful event that you went through. 
and then how that's impacted the quality of your life in terms of the symptoms that you suffer, again, pulled directly from the DVQ. Things like difficulty adapting to stressful circumstances, inability to establish and maintain effective relationships, and et cetera. I've, I've discussed a lot of these. Well, it's the same exact thing with tinnitus, with your back, with your sleep apnea, with your GERD, with your migraine headaches. Um, any number of one of those things will lead to things like difficulty in adapting to stressful circumstances at work, uh, impaired judgment, impaired impulse control. If you're in pain all the time and there's nothing that you can do to get rid of that pain, you're going to absolutely have impaired impulse control. You're going to be much more short-tempered, much more prone to outbursts. Um, and those are the things that you're wanting to talk about in the CMP exam. You're always wanting to tie back how the physical disability is impacting the quality of your life and leading to these symptoms, leading to these symptoms of depression, anxiety, impaired impulse control, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's a little bit of a circular conversation. You're not going to just be talking about the physical symptoms in and of themselves. They understand the physical symptoms. They're already service-connected, and they're already rated, and most likely they're probably rated appropriately according to the CFR, right? So you got to keep in mind that with physical disabilities, the criteria for rating those are very narrow. So we tend to think, you know, well, if my knee is at 10%, that it must not be that bad. But that's not true. Again, just like with the example of tinnitus, it may only rate at 10%. But you can see how significant the impact on your quality of life can be. So those are, those are things I really want you to keep in mind um, when you're talking about somatic symptom disorder or chronic pain and your um, CMP exam. And that's why I wanted to bring it up when I was talking about PTSD is because the similarity between these two um, is quite significant. Uh, they're rated by all the same symptoms. Truly, the only difference is the root cause, right? So... Um, I've done a, a quite a bit of just talking here off the top of my head. I really wanted to take some time now and um, see if there's any specific questions. So if you have any specific questions right now, um, please feel free to throw those out. And I'm going to take a second just to read through some of the comments and see if there's any questions I've missed and maybe um, address those now as well. Looks like a lot of people are asking for it to be um, recorded. Yeah, I think it will be recorded. Yeah, Michael, no, that, that's exactly it. What you're describing there with um, what you experienced in traffic, um, no, that's it, man. That's a trigger for you. And what that trigger hits and what that causes is that unprovoked irritability. I'll guarantee you that the way you act and the way you feel in, in a car is not the way you feel in normal life. But again, this is just how you process some of your own, whether it be the stress from your physical disabilities or the stress from PTSD. But that's absolutely hitting it. That aggressiveness that comes out when you're driving, that's, that's straight 70% disability rating right there. Okay, Terrell just said the live saved to Brian's page. I think there's a time frame on how long they save for, um, like 24 hours or something like that, but um, I, I'm not the guy who can really answer that, to be honest with you. Chronic pain rated out at uh, 40%, medically retired out. So I wonder, in your case, Justin, maybe 
so there there's there's actually an important distinction to make here um i don't know if you're by chance a gulf war vet but for gulf war vets who have had ongoing pain in their muscles and in their joints but it's never been able to be diagnosed as anything specifically that's a different kind of chronic pain what that really means is undiagnosed pain we have records of you complaining about pain we know it's there we don't know why it's there and the va will award that as one of the gulf war um, symptoms um, the chronic pain that i'm talking about here is actually it's clinically it's somatic symptom disorder and that's a mental health rating and that always rents rates at 0 10 30 50 70 or 100. so interestingly enough if you have chronic pain due to gulf war syndrome you could actually file chronic pain somatic symptom disorder as secondary to that, and that could come in at 70% or possibly even 100%. I've seen, for example, someone who was rated 20% for their back with 10% each radiculopathy in each um, upper extremity, or lower extremity, sorry. Uh, he, so he's 20% for his back. We filed chronic pain as secondary to it, and he was awarded 100% permanent and total for that. So again, you think a 20% disability isn't worth all that much, but in fact, when the VA actually looked into it and we filed the chronic pain claim um, secondary to it, it turns out that upon further evaluation, based off of the criteria for somatic symptom disorder, he actually met the, the rating standard for 100% permanent and total. So though his back um, range of motion wise, he only met the, the criteria for a 20% rating, the impact of the, that his back was having on his life and his inability to work um, was a significant factor in why he rated for that 100% um, uh, permanent total rating. Yeah, um, Glenn, I, I think that, um, I'm not sure if that was a question, but it says rating 30% for kidney, 10% for, I'm assuming that's tinnitus. Um, yeah, what you want to look into, you know, I, I kind of gave some examples of tinnitus and how that impacts people's life. Um, and then you would just kind of want to look at, well, how does the 30% uh, for your kidney disability, how does that impact the quality of your life? Um, if, if the disabilities that you have are leading to a degraded quality of life, um, naturally, Things like depression, anxiety, frustration, you know, those kinds of things are all going to accompany that. The more uh, Western medicine progresses, the more we find out and the more you see the terminology of um, mind-body health. And the reason for that is because truly there's no separation between the two. If you're suffering physical symptoms, um, it, whether it be uh, some you know, consequences from your kidney disability or, or for your tinnitus, those kinds of things are going to impact your overall well-being, and that's what the basis for the chronic pain claim or the smack symptom sort of claim is. Still keep fighting claims. Why still keep fighting their total? Spencer, I don't know. I've had that with some of my clients as well. So the question is, I've seen people who have 100% permanent and total, yet they still keep fighting claims. On the one hand, I'd say there's, there's not really a reason to keep going for it. On the other hand, I will say this. There's what's called special monthly compensation. And 
there's some clear information out there about this, and then there's a lot of ambiguous information out there about this. And there are certain things that the VA decides on special monthly compensation that we're just not 100% clear on. Um, but we do know loss of use is a big factor. So one reason someone might go for a claim, even after being awarded 100% permanent in total, is because they want to get that special monthly compensation and they feel like they deserve it. Maybe in their case, um, you know, I recently spoke to someone who has um, been encouraged to file radiculopathy in their legs. They're not currently service connected for it. And the VA encouraged them to file it even after they were just awarded 100%. And so the question is, well, why file for it? Well, again, it's a loss of use thing. The guy can hardly walk anymore um, and, and he doesn't have much use of his legs, not like he used to. And so it could, there's no guarantee, but it could lead to special monthly compensation. Secondary claim for sleep apnea. So, Sarah, it's a little bit off topic, but I'll go ahead and tackle that question since we're here. The question is, um, your husband's currently rated at 60% for residual effects of bladder cancer. He's now been diagnosed with severe sleep apnea. He's thinking about filing a secondary claim for sleep apnea. What suggestions would you give him to get started? Um, you know, the core thing to getting sleep apnea linked to um, a disability uh, secondarily is how has that disability impacted your overall health? So I don't know. Um, I would have to talk to you to be able to, to dig into this more. But um, depending on how severe the symptoms are of the bladder cancer and how that's affected your, your husband's overall um, physical health, if he's suffered weight gain due to that disability, that could be the basis for filing sleep apnea secondary to it. And so it's what's kind of uh, referred to as a bridge, right? So the, the bridge in this case is the weight gain. So the one disability is uh, bladder cancer. If that bladder cancer has led to lifestyle changes that have caused weight gain, we know that weight gain can exasperate sleep apnea. And so this is an important thing to know. There may not be a causal relationship, but there doesn't necessarily have to be a causal relationship. All that has to be proved is that one disability is 51% or greater for um, a contributor for the severity of the disability itself. So the sleep apnea may not be caused by the bladder cancer, but if the bladder cancer has led to weight gain and that weight gain has exasperated the sleep apnea, making it as severe as it is, that could be the basis for connecting it. Back and neck injury from blood and bones. So Miguel, um, yeah, this is a really good one. So um, I have one migraine secondary to tinnitus um, many times. There's a, there's a body of evidence that suggests that um, there's a strong correlation between migraines and tinnitus. So if you've been diagnosed with migraines and you're already service connected for tinnitus, um, I don't want to 
oversell us. I don't think there's anything necessarily easy with the VA, but that's definitely a winnable claim. Um, and I've won that plenty of times. Um, there's, there's, I think 60 to 70% of people that have been, uh, that have tinnitus have also been diagnosed with migraines. So there's a really strong correlation between the two. Um, also, if you're having to take a lot of ibuprofen, even though that's just an over-the-counter uh, medication, if you're having to take that for the migraines, um, that could be potentially causing GERD as well. So acid reflux. And so that would be another secondary claim that you would be able to look in getting service connected. Um, and every one of those, you could file somatic symptom disorder as secondary to that. So let's just say that in your particular case, and I'm, I'm not, I can't hear back from you, so I'm just going to make some assumptions and I'm just going to use yours as an example. So let's say all you have right now is currently service connected is 10% for tinnitus, but you've been diagnosed with migraines and you have acid reflux, right? So the first thing I would say is if you haven't seen a doctor about the acid reflux, I would say go and see a doctor right away and, and get some medical records on that and get that diagnosed. If you then have a diagnosis for migraines and GERD, you can file migraines and GERD secondary to the tinnitus. Uh, well, migraines secondary to the tinnitus, GERD secondary to the migraines, because you can file secondary to secondaries. And then at that point, you could get 50% for the migraines, 30% uh, for the GERD. And then if you filed chronic pain as secondary to both, all three of those, tinnitus, migraine, and the GERD, you could potentially get 70% or 100% just for that. So even if you didn't get 100%, that would be 70% uh, for the somatic symptom disorder plus 50% for the migraines, putting you at 85, which rounds up to 90. And then I think the 30 and the 10, I don't think that would be enough to get you the rest of the way to 100. But still, that's a pretty substantial swing from 10% to 90% or potentially 100%. And you've got a pretty clear path to get there. You just need to get the medical records to back that up. Um, and the medical records that you would need would be a um, – Nexus letter for the migraines, a nexus letter for the GERD. Those would need to come from a medical professional. And then you would need to get a psych evaluation for the somatic symptom disorder um, and get a nexus letter and a DBQ for that as well. With those in place, you stand a really, that, that's a really strong claim. Again, there's no guarantees with the VA, right? So we can't guarantee anything, but what we can do is do the best we can to build the claim for you as strong as possible so that it has the highest likelihood of not only winning, but being rated appropriately. So, you know, that's the potential that you're looking at with that claim. Um, well, all right, guys. Uh, I'm not getting a lot of questions about CMP exams or 70%. How often to reduce the based on reevaluations? Um, Brian. Uh, it's every few years or so. There's a little bit of randomness involved in that, um, just kind of depending on your region, how busy they are, any, any number of factors. But anything that's not permanent in total gets reevaluated every few years or so. Um, there's a lot of concern about reevaluations. People, people sweat that quite a bit. I've gone through several reevaluations myself over the 10 years since I left the military. Every reevaluation I've ever done has led to an increase. So um, what I would say is 
reevaluations are nothing to be concerned about. As a matter of fact, over time, disabilities increase in value because disabilities tend to actually get worse, not better, especially physical disabilities. I mean, let's be honest, you jack your knee up when you're 20 something years old, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. In your 30s, it starts to seem like a little bit of a deal. In your 40s, it's a deal. 50 years, you know, in your 50s, you can't even walk anymore. You know, it just gets worse over time, right? Um, so reevaluation, so long as you know what your symptoms are and you know how to uh, communicate effectively in the CMP exam, you should be just fine. Um, and, and actually, that kind of brings up another myth that, that I would like to dispel because I hear this a lot from vets when I'm doing my one-on-one -on -one coaching calls or um, through email or whatever when I'm talking with vets or engaging with vets. And there's this idea out there that CMP examiners are not veteran friendly. And I'll tell you, I don't believe that's true. Are there some? Yeah, there are, of course. We're talking about a massive bureaucracy across the entire nation, right? Of course, there are going to be people that are jaded towards veterans. But veterans also very often don't want to take ownership of their shit. And so let's get real. I'm going to kind of put it back in your hands some and say, look, you know, um, if you go in there with a chip in your on your shoulder and you, you take out your frustrations and your, your um, aggression on the CMP examiner, it's human nature to want to get even or be vindictive, right? So if you're mean or rude to a CMP examiner, um, yeah, they're likely to not be helpful. Alternatively, um, if you are decent to them and, and you are kind and you treat them with respect, you're much more likely to engender help on their part. Also, and this is a very big factor, is the importance of knowing your symptoms and, and how they actually rate. Um, physical disabilities and somatic symptom disorder are actually a really great example of this. If you ever listen to someone talk about their disabilities, um, they'll be talking about their knee, for example, and their knee is rated at 10% and they're like, look, my knee's only rated at 10%, but I can hardly walk anymore. I'm in constant pain. It wakes me up in the middle of the night from throbbing. If I'm on my feet for very long, uh, it kills me. If I sit for very long, it, it starts to ache. So listen to what they're doing. They're talking about the pain and they're talking about how it's impacting the quality of their life. But according to the CFR, all that's actually examined is range of motion. They're not, when they're evaluating their knee, your knee, they're not actually evaluating the pain or are they impact, uh, evaluating the impact on your quality of life. The only way to get those things evaluated and factored in is through a somatic symptom disorder claim or a chronic pain claim. And interestingly enough for the VA, that's a mental health claim. Angel, you got your CMP exam in a few hours. Good luck with that. I hope you do fantastically. Do you have any specific questions or is there anything I can help clarify uh, for you before you go in? Bring up when attending a CMP exam. Okay, so there's that one question. What is the main thing to mention or bring up when attending a CMP exam for PTSD? Really good question. Um, so, Here's a big misconception around PTSD exams. People tend to think that what's evaluated or what's awarded is based off of the severity of the events that you went through. But guess what? It's not. 
I've seen vets who were blown up by IED in Iraq and were uh, medevaced out of there, only rated 10% for their PTSD. And I've seen Vietnam vets only rated 10% for their PTSD. And Vietnam War was one of the most hor uh, horrendous events we we've ever been engaged in, right? Um, we know uh, how horrific it was and, and what Vietnam vets have went through and how deeply they've suffered. So if all that mattered was the severity of the event, then you would think that those guys would have just been given 70% or 100% out the gate, but they were only rated 10%. Now, is that because the VA is a, just a cruel and indifferent organization? Not really. Not really. Um, a big part of that is actually comes down to not knowing what things to talk about. And, and I don't fault the vet for that. The VA should be doing a better job educating people on the symptoms of PTSD and helping them communicate on it effectively. Um, but what it really boils down to, what's actually evaluated are what I was explaining earlier, those symptoms that are directly from the DBQ. There's a list, it's under section seven, and those are all the symptoms that get checked off in an evaluation. And those symptoms directly correlate to a rating and so what I would suggest, Angel, is look over your DVQ, go to section seven and read over those symptoms and find out, you know, what symptoms do I have? And, um, or even download a DVQ, because that'll have all of them. And um, read over all the symptoms and find out which ones you have and be prepared to talk about those. I gave some examples earlier, so dig into those for your own self. Do you ever experience impaired impulse control? Do you ever, Lose your cool on, you know, a spouse, a significant other, kids, workmates, um, clients that you work with, um, people in traffic, uh, people at the grocery store. I mean, do you ever find yourself overreacting to a situation? Do you struggle with difficult circumstances? Do you struggle with your stress in difficult circumstances? Do you struggle with stress at work? Um, have you begun to isolate? Have you quit hanging out with friends? Have you quit socializing, going out to events, those kinds of things? And those are all symptoms directly from the um, DBQ. And those are the things that are actually going to be evaluated in terms of what rating you get. So focus less on the event. Of course, you have to talk about that. If this is your first time filing a PTSD claim, they're going to want to know what the stressor was and whether or not it was a valid stressor. That's only 10% of the claim though. That's just establishing whether or not there's a valid basis for a PTSD claim. So long as there's a valid basis for a PTSD claim, you move right on and really your attention should be 90% on those symptoms and how they impact you um, in your life. And again, show, don't tell. So don't, don't say I have impaired impulse control. Um, give examples of it. Um, Carlotta, what is a DBQ? It's the Disability Benefit Questionnaire. And whenever you do a CMP exam, that's what's being done. The CMP examiner is filling out the Disability Benefit Questionnaire because that's the form that the VA rating officer will go off of when they're determining how to award your claim because it directly correlates to the CFR. And so it makes the VA rating officer's job really easy to know what percentage you should be awarded. Keep in mind that a VA rating officer will spend about 20 to 30 minutes reviewing all of the evidence for your claim. So the DBQ makes it real easy for them to quick scan over things and figure out what you should be rated. Um, okay. Deeper, better in those. 
So he's what? So uh, Richard Dodson. Um, it's a little bit hard for me to ferret all this out just off of what you're asking. So the question was, I have a veteran that is 70%, 100% with individual um, unemployability. He's in bed a lot. Wife takes care of him, missing work to care for him. Um, applied to for AA, denied both times. Shall we apply for secondary conditions that reapply? Um, it's a little bit hard for me to give you a real solid answer to that without knowing more information, but my guess would be that he should probably easily qualify for 100% permanent and total for somatic symptom disorder secondary to whatever he's rated at. Now, if that 70% is just for PTSD, then he should be rated at 100% for PTSD, not 100% uh, for individual unemployability. And this is something that's important to keep in mind about individual unemployability, the difference between individual unemployability and 100% rating. If you can qualify for 100% based off of your ratings, you should be rated at 100%, not individual unemployability. What individual unemployability is actually there for are those people who cannot actually meet, actually hit 100% rating based off of their disabilities, but because of the severity of them, they should still be um, compensated at the 100% rate. So let me give you an example, and this isn't the best example, but this is just an example, all right? Let's say someone had a 50% rating for their migraine headaches, and that was maxed out. That was the highest it could go. And let's say they were also rated for 50% for their sleep apnea. And again, that's maxed out. That's the highest it could go, okay? Um, now, that's all they're rated for, and that 50 and 50 would put them at a total overall rating of 70%. Now, there would be no way for them to actually get rated at 100% rating. However, between those two disabilities, they may be completely unable to work. Their migraines might be so severe that they cannot maintain um, employability. In that case, they would qualify for individual unemployability. And that's someone who should be receiving the 100% compensation due to individual unemployability. They cannot meet 100% rating, but they cannot work. Therefore, they should be paid individual unemployability. Now, if someone was rated for PTSD, but, and that can go all the way to 100%, and they're unable to work, they should be rated at 100%. Not individual unemployability, they should be rated at 100%. So those are uh, important things to keep in mind about 100% in individual unemployability. Um, section seven would be section three. Um, let's do this, Batista. Um, I'm gonna go real quick and bring up a DBQ. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's section seven, it may be section four, but I'm gonna just double check that for you real quick. Give me just one second so I can bring one up. <clears throat> it, it also, it's important to keep in mind that it depends on um, what DBQ you're looking at and whether it's an official DBQ or not. Um, Cause I've seen it in different sections depending on the type of DBQ. 
Give me just one second here while I bring it up. Of course, since I'm going live, my computer's going a little bit slower. So give me just a little bit of patience, guys, and I'll get it for you. So three, four, five, six. Yeah, it's section seven, Ramiro, but it, you know it is Roman numerals, so it's V I I is how it is spelled out in there, and that's that's from the official DBQ. Um, so if you look on there, that's that's where you'll see it. I'll, um, I'll type it out like this. It's it's word. It looks like this. If you can see my comment there. Yeah, Roger, man, God, that is such a good question, and, that, and that's something that I deal with um, quite a bit with a, a lot of my vets. Um, when you're put on the spot, it can be really difficult to, to talk about things, especially when it's something so important. Um, and, and then the other thing is, is we're dealing with this awkward feeling of um, sometimes we're be, we feel like we're kind of being given a lie detector test, and that makes it that much more complicated because especially if, if we want to be honest and we, and we want to um, really come at the CMP exam with integrity, sometimes we can shoot ourselves in the foot. Someone who's worried about, so there, there are two big uh, polar opposites that, that can happen in a, in a CMP exam. One is we can over-exaggerate and we can under-exaggerate, right? And so you get two different people who kind of tend to do two different things. For the person who really cares about their integrity and is and very much cares about doing this um, ethically and only wants to get what they're awarded, that person is very likely to undermine themselves by um, under-exaggerating their claims. And so what they'll do is they'll downplay things. They can let their pride get in their way and... Um, they they don't give a real honest self-reflection of what they're actually dealing with on a daily basis because we're so programmed to, especially if we're a very self-respecting person, we're so programmed to give positive answers to questions. So a real common example of that is if I ask, how are you doing? You're like, oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking, whatever, you know. Um, if you're wired that way, your tendency can be to um, under- exaggerate the severity of your symptoms and not really be open, honest, and transparent about the severity of, of your struggles. So if you find it difficult to communicate very well, one thing I would ask is, could a spouse come with you? Now, there's no guarantee that they'll allow your spouse to come with you. But if they do allow her to come back with you, which often they do, and I always recommend bringing a spouse with you to the CMP exam, they can be a huge advocate for you and provide great perspective on things. Another thing that can be helpful is taking the time to write notes, again, based off the symptoms from the DBQ ahead of time. That serves two purposes. One, it'll give you notes to reference, but here's the biggest thing that it actually serves. Writing forces clarity of thinking. It forces you to think about what your symptoms actually are and, and how you're actually experiencing them and taking that time to process and write through it will help you to gain clarity as well and perspective as well. And that will help you that much more answer questions very naturally and organically.
Um, finally, one other thing that you can do is um, write a statement in support of claim. Um, the CMP exam is only one part of the entire claims process. If you find it difficult to speak in person, you might find it easier to write about things. And if you're working with a, um, a VCE, um, write your statement for a claim and ask them to take a look at it and give you any kind of feedback that they have. Uh, we look at statements all the time. We also do CMP exams all the time and coaching for CMP exams all the time. And so that's something that we can really help. And, and I know all the VCEs are helpful, are willing to give their perspective on a statement to make sure that you're really developing it and, and communicating effectively. And if you submit your statement in support of claim, regardless of how you do in the CMP exam, the statement will be read by the VA rating officer. And ultimately, that's the person making the decision. It's the VA rating officer, not the CMP examiner. So th those are a few things that you can do if you find it difficult to talk about things in, per um, in person. And then, you know, finally, what I would say is do a coaching call with your uh, VCE and have a dry run the day before your, your CMP exam just to make sure you're going over everything and you, you really have it hammered out. You've asked all your questions. And um, you've had a dry run and an opportunity to talk through everything. So you feel that much more comfortable talking about things. And finally, the other thing that I would advise is to keep in mind um, some nervousness, some anxiety, some stress, some tension. Those things are actually good. Use those things. Channel that into your CMP exam. And again, going back to that creating a human connection with the CMP examiner. Let them know what you're feeling. Let them know your concerns. Say, look, I'm feeling a lot of stress around this. I'm feeling a lot of anxiety around this. I don't feel like I can think straight. And um, I'm really worried that I'm not going to answer your questions well, which doesn't mean that I won't answer your questions honestly. I'm absolutely going to answer your questions honestly, but I'm afraid I can't think straight right now. And I'm afraid I'm going to accidentally trip myself up in this CMP exam. Would you please help me to develop, you know, help me with asking leading questions. Help me to understand what you're asking. Um, continue, if I don't answer the question well enough, rephrase the question. Do whatever you can to help me out because this ultimately impacts my life and I want to make sure I get a fair evaluation. Um, that'll go a long way in engendering some empathy on the part of the CMP examiner and hopefully getting them to help you out. Okay, so what if you aren't good about expressing your feeling if you are filing for PTSD? Is it good or bad if you bring your service dog with you to the CMP exam? I'd say it's not necessarily um, good or bad in any sort of ultimate way. Um, however, if it will help you to communicate more effectively um, and it'll help you to be calmer and be able to be more um, clear-minded, uh, then yes, absolutely bring your, your um, service dog with you. Um, and if you aren't good about expressing your feeling, yeah, Jesus, that's, that's every single vet. Here's the thing. <clears throat> you don't actually have to be talking about your feelings with a PTSD exam. It's not really about your feelings. It's about the symptoms. Again, some of these symptoms are things such as difficulty in understanding complex commands, impaired judgment. Um, impaired abstract thinking, disturbances of motivation or mood, difficulty in establishing and maintaining effective work and social relationships. 
What I would always suggest is go over those symptoms from the DVQ and start with the assumption that you have all of them and ask, if I have this, if this is true, how do I experience this? And the reason why I suggest that is because it's far too easy to read something and then just dismiss it and say, oh, well, I don't have that, right? But maybe you're wrong. Maybe you're dismissing something that you actually have. And if you took a minute to reflect upon, well, have I ever experienced this? If so, how? You might find out that you have more symptoms on there that you think you have, that, than you think that you have, you know? Um, here, this is, this is straight from the 100% rating. Intermittent inability to perform activities of daily living including maintenance of minimal personal hygiene. Now that's just including, that's not saying that's the only thing. I've experienced times where my depression was so bad that I couldn't cook, I couldn't make a meal. And so I, the only way I was able to get by was eating like cereal or microwave meals or whatever. You know, I've ex definitely experienced times of depression that were that bad. And that's a, that's a symptom straight from the 100% rating. That's just, that's just daily living. But because my depression was so bad, I couldn't do it. So have you ever experienced times intermittent? Have you ever experienced times where just the normals of just the normal activities of daily living felt too much? Hey, Roger, you're, you're doing fantastic, man. And um, if I'm not answering your questions, well, whatever, you know, um, feel free to, to shoot me an email um, or a private message and any, anything I can do to, to help you out. But you're asking great questions um, and, and hopefully you're getting some, some good value out of this. One thing that I'll say is um, this is a process. Don't expect to know it all off the, uh, off the bat. I, I don't know. Do you have a CNP exam coming up real soon? Um, while I'm waiting for answer, I'm going to see if there's any other questions. I wish I had all this. Yeah, Justin, you're right. Sometimes they don't allow the wife to come back. Sometimes they do. And so I always say ask. I always, always ask and try first. Um, and it always pisses me off when they don't uh, allow the, the vet to bring their spouse back. Um, but uh, in my experience, more often than not, they do uh, allow them to come back. Um, yeah, one, one thing I want to revisit, I, I talked about this briefly, but I do want to revisit this, um, because there's such a tendency to do both of these things with vets. It's, we can over-exaggerate and we can under-exaggerate. And a lot of that just depends on how you're feeling at the time and, and how you're wired. And so, um, for someone who feels like, the VA is unfair, it's unjust, it's out to get them, they feel on guard, they feel very uh, defensive, they might feel inclined to over-exaggerate things. And one thing that I'll caution against that is that in reality, you're probably actually over-exaggerating the, the truth. And if you just took the time to dig into the symptoms, you would be able to communicate effectively without over-exaggerating anything. Um, but 
that feeling can be there that I need to over-exaggerate if I'm going to get rated fairly because I'm not going to get a fair shake unless I do. What I would say is there's always an honest approach to getting rated appropriately and correctly. And the, the most effective way to do that is to know the symptoms and, and be able to show, don't tell. Uh, uh, communicate them effectively and accurately. There's no real, re no real reason to over-exaggerate anything because I, by and large, I think every single veteran should be rated at 70% to 100% for their mental health ratings if you really look at the symptoms from the 70% category and the 100% category. It doesn't imply that you're crazy. It doesn't imply that um, you're a lunatic. It just implies that you have some things that you struggle with. Um, so over-exaggeration, that's, that's one tendency that, that we have. Um, and what, what ends up backfiring is that these CMP examiners, they do these all day, every day. And so they have a radar for sincerity. They have a radar for um, how truthful you're coming across. And whenever we're over-exaggerating, we tend to be kind of obvious. So it's important not to over-exaggerate, but instead to know your symptoms and to be able to effectively communicate them. And then under-exaggerating those. And by and large, um, those are going to be the people who um, they, they, they may have thoughts along the lines of, I don't want anything I don't deserve. They probably have some shame around the idea of even pursuing a mental health claim because they have a Hollywood version of what PTSD looks like. They think that it means you're handcuffed to the bed because of your night terrors and you're a threat to other people. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's been a disservice out there around what PTSD actually looks like. And so we, we have this you know, a grandiose vision of what PTSD looks like. And so we think if I do have it, I must only have it at like 30%. But if you look at the symptoms of 30%, man, that's really your basic teenager, right? Um, so that under-exaggerating where that comes into play is we don't feel comfortable admitting and owning things that embarrass us, cause us shame, and that we want to keep private. But this is your claim and this is your rating and this is um, impacts your bottom line for the rest of your life. And the only person you really have to be upfront and honest with about this is the CMP examiner. You know, when I'm doing my coaching calls with my vets and when I'm doing my intake calls with my vets, I even do my best not to pry out of respect for your privacy and not to, to put you two on the spot. Um, but I always advise, you know, the two times where you have to be brutally honest and you got to own your shit. It's in your psych eval with the, the private psychologist and in your CMP exam. And if you write any statements in your statements, you got to do that as well. But in person, you have to be able to do it in your psych eval and you have to be able to do it in your CMP exam. And you need to be brutally honest and you need to be willing to own your shit. Um, do that and you're going to end up um, most likely rated appropriately. And if you're not rated appropriately, guess what? We're going to turn around and fire a, a higher level review and make sure you get rated appropriately. Um, it's not as hard to get rated appropriately as you might think, so long as you have the evidence to back it up and you know what you should be rated and why. Uh, this is a really good question, uh, Carlos. So will it affect my CMP exam? Because if my prior job, saying my symptoms are related to my job as a first 
responder. So if I'm understanding you right, is the question here that um, if you're in a stressful job, would that undermine what you should be rated? I'm not, I'm not 100% sure what you're asking there, but um, we all have to work. And your education, your experience is what led you to being in the position that you're in now. I'm sure that you have, you know, yourself to take care of, probably a family to take care of. You can't just up and leave a job just because you want to, right? And so if that's the job that you have to do and the symptoms of your somatic symptom disorder or your PTSD um, are triggered by your job and, and exasperated by your job, um, that's not a reason why you shouldn't be rated at a higher rating. That's a reason you should be rated at a higher rating. Right. So I was having symptoms of SSD prior to becoming a first responder. And then you become a first responder and it, it probably exasperates it. And yeah, your line of work doesn't disqualify you from a rating. And here's another piece of misinformation. And I've heard this from VA rating officers, you know, um, and this is just dead wrong. Um, they've said things, you know, sometimes that like you can't be rated at 100% for PTSD, for example, if you have a job. That is completely false. You can have a full-time job um, and still be rated at 100% for PTSD. If you look on the symptoms straight from the DBQ for PTSD and somatic symptom disorder, there's not a single, single disability on there that specifies whether or not you have a job or specifies how much income you can make. Neither one of those two things are a rating criteria. So you could have, theoretically speaking, you could have a full-time job be making six figures and still meet all the criteria for 100% rating for PTSD. Because it goes strictly off of the disabilities that they evaluate for your mental health rating. And uh, your employment and your income are not one of those. So if a VA rating officer ever says that, they're dead wrong and you can fight that. Josh, that's awesome. That's the way to go. You, you want to have medical DB, you know, Josh says, I'm loading up on DBQs and Nexus letters this year's, uh, this year's scheduled private medical doctors. That's the perfect way to go, man. Get the medical evidence and get the medical opinions to back you up. It's one thing for you to come in off the street, you know, Joe Schmo just saying, hey, I got this thing or whatever. It's a completely different thing to have a professional, um, non-biased medical opinion backing you up. Um, all right, guys, uh, if you were 70%, how do you move towards the 100%? Carlotta uh, asked if you're, if you're at 70%, how do you move towards the 100%? Um, you know, that's going to be, I, I would read over, again, I'll read over the DVQ, find out if you meet. Also, the CFR, that's, that's the other piece of the puzzle. Um, I'd read over those. They're, they're directly uh, connected to each other. The, the DVQ is more flushed out. Um, but the, C, the CFR uh, lines out exactly what the rating criteria is. Um, and if you meet the criteria for the 100% rating, um, I would recommend getting a psych evaluation done so that you have medical evidence from a, a board-certified psychologist backing you up and then request the increase and be prepared to talk about those symptoms from the 100% cri uh, rating criteria and how you experience those symptoms in your life.
Can you request to have a new evaluation? Um, well, that, that's really relevant uh, to what your particular situation is. Um, so if you were evaluated more than a year ago, you can ask for an increase and it's just a request for an increase. If it's within the last 12 months, you would actually be filing a higher level review or a supplemental claim. Um, so it's a little bit of, it's not an easy question for me to answer necessarily because it depends on the, the nature of your circumstances. Um, but yeah, there's always um, the opportunity to do a reevaluation. Um, Brian Bray, what if PTSD changed the whole direction of your life? What does that fall under? Well, you can't really specify that. Again, um, what the VA is going to be looking at, it's, it's these symptoms directly from the DVQ. And again, that's section seven um, on the DVQ. And then you can also look at the CFR and um, the breakdown for the 10%, 30%, 50%, 70%, and 100% rating. Um, those two things are, you know, it's hand in glove. The DVQ is the hand, the, the CFR is the glove. Um, read over those two things and, and that'll help you ferret out what you should be rated. Um, but we've gone over the hour by, by you know, quite a little bit. Um, example, airplane accident stressors, altered career path to be a pilot, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I've had to, I had to make career changes due to my PTSD. So I, I can definitely relate to you on that. Um, I was in Intel um, and had a fantastic career. Actually, I worked in the F, uh, the insect. I worked in the office the uh, president comes to to be briefed um, and had meetings uh, with the director of the NSA, CIA, FBI, DIA. Um, I had a fantastically successful career and I had to walk away from it. Um, so I, I can definitely relate to, to what you're dealing with there. Um, but in terms of rating criteria, uh, the, the VA is pretty strict in how they look at it. So you want to look at that rating criteria and know how that pertains to your own life. Um, uh, Rick, fantastic question. Thank you for asking it. What is the possibility of getting 100% for severe depression disorder? It's great. All mental health claims are rated exactly the same. I was focusing today on PTSD and somatic symptom disorder, um, but major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, um, any number of other mental disorders that you could be rated for, all rate exactly the same under the same rating criteria. So it would be no different for someone um, service connected for depression than it would be for someone service connected for PTSD. Exact same rating criteria. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up today, guys. I do have um, so, uh, some calls coming up with some of you, not maybe some of you that are on here today, but some of my vets that are there's a schedule with me. So I need to wrap things up and get on um, to that. I hope that I was able to dispel some myths around CMP exams and hopefully provide some uh, clarity on how to be prepared for your CMP exam for PTSD and chronic pain and how to know how to talk about those things. Um, guys, thank you for being on today. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk with you. Um, thanks for being a part of our movement. We're disabled vets just like you and we're out on a mission 
Um, we're your team members. We're here to help you out. We love you. We here, we're here for you. Um, it's a tough job, I'll tell you that. Um, but we do it because we care. And, and I hope that you know that every one of the VCEs are in your corner and will fight for you tooth and nail to make sure that your claim is as successful as possible. Um, thanks for everything. Thanks for being a part of our team. We're here for you. Um, and uh, we're extremely grateful for you, extremely grateful to be able to work with you. And have a wonderful day. I wish you the best of luck if you have some CMP exams coming up. Uh, don't hesitate to reach out to your VCE if you have any questions about uh, anything that I said today. Our VCEs are fantastic and they're here for you 100% of the way. Um, all right, guys, have a wonderful day. Talk to you later. Bye.